I broke my toe last spring. <laughs> it was the darnest thing. I was on safari in India. My goal was to see the rare Bengal tiger. My wife and I are not outdoors people. Rather than commune with nature, we like to commute through nature on the way to some alpine resort. So this would be an experience to see in the wild and to absorb the awesome power of one of the wild's most fearsome predators. Who knows whether these legendary carnivores will even survive in the wild a generation from now. So we set out into the jungle early in the morning. There were eight of us in this open air truck, sheltered from the blazing sun by one of those flimsy white canopies. Within an hour, we were in tiger country. The jungle was heaving with primordial energy. Like all cats, tigers dislike noise, so the motor was shut and our guide cautioned us not to make a sound. And there, in the middle of the jungle, we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And after what seemed like hours, something moved in the trees some feral stealth that rustled the mighty leaves of the banyan trees. And then a slow, deep growl, most fearsome, that roused our breathless anticipation. Suddenly, I heard a human sob. It was soft. It was feminine. But it was unmistaken. No one else heard it, but I was so attuned to my surroundings that I was sure a woman was crying for help. She must have heard this tiger on the prowl, and it was lunchtime for the big cat. Did you hear that? Said, there's a woman in distress. Someone needs to save her, I pleaded. The Indian guide thought I had lost my mind. Jungle fever, he mumbled to himself commanding that no one leave the truck. On instinct, sensing that I would be restrained in seconds by the burly guide who considered me a threat to everyone else, I leaped out of the truck to save the damsel. Well, to make a very long story short, I found the woman cowering behind the banyan tree. She was blonde and beautiful and Scandinavian. We dashed for the truck. The stunned passengers lifted her up and threw her in. I grabbed the bar, and while I was pulling myself over, crunch. I heard it before I felt it. It was the middle phalanx of my digitus pedis cordis four, <laughs> otherwise known as the fourth toe, broken by the incisors of a bangled tiger. But at least I broke my toe doing something heroic. Now you tell me, what rabbi has time to go to India in the middle of the year? <laughs> I stubbed my toe in my apartment in New York City. <laughs> it wasn't heroic. It was stupid. There was no damsel in distress. It was for nothing. 
But who wants to admit that their suffering is for nothing? If we are condemned to months of pain, if we are reduced to temporary or permanent disability, at least let it be for a heroic cause. Senseless suffering is senseless. Even a skiing crash is for something. Although, given the number of congregants who return with broken bones, somehow I think that there are better pursuits for Jews. <laughs> but I would take even that. If I could say that I crashed in pursuit of the world downhill record for men over the age of 55, or you know what, not a competition, just the mental image of gliding downhill, the wind in my face, the mountain at my command, suggests a kind of masculine significance to an otherwise unmanly and meaningless toe fracture, the result of placing the complete essays of Montagna on the bookshelf. When all is well with us, when everything is working, when we are carefree and unburdened by life, when we are so nonplussed that we don't even think about what needs to happen in our bodies to enable us to walk or to breathe. We live in a heroic state of mind. Life yields to the force of our will. We are fearless, capable of heroic acts. If called upon, we will save the damsel in distress. In this state of mind, we have an insatiable appetite for conquest and pleasure, eating from the fat of the weed and drawing honey from the rock, and I mean this in the most positive sense. Our tradition insists that we be productive, that we master our world, that we accomplish and achieve and prevail over adversity. Judaism considers this world important and consequential, not merely a rest stop on the highway to heaven. Whatever is in your power to do, do it with all your might, Ecclesiastes wrote. And our tradition urges us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. We do not work for nothing. The Talmud cautions that we will be admonished in the world to come for all of the legitimate pleasures we denied ourselves in this world. In this heroic state of mind, living productively and optimizing our, our potential requires constant self-focus. Im en anili mili, say the rabbis. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? They understood that the natural state of human beings is for me. Our sages acknowledged that we see the world from the inside out, that we have and should have a high estimation of our own worth. They encouraged us to view ourselves heroically. I can be a gladiator, slay dragons, 
save damsels in distress. And when fractures occur in my life, they quickly heal. The rabbis actually use the term heroic. Be a hero, they urge. Ezehu gibor, who is a hero? Asks the Mishnah. Live like a hero, conquer, master, produce, enjoy, overcome obstacles on the way to self-realization and self-fulfillment. Self-realization requires such self-focus that when we are in this heroic state of mind, we view even those who are struggling as somehow about me, subtly and even subconsciously. We consider another's problem a conspiracy against me. That annoying homeless man who accosts me every morning. He may not have had anything to eat since yesterday, but I view him as a hindrance, slowing me down, causing me to be late for my meeting. Or that crazed woman who plants herself by my window every night, shrieking at the top of her lungs. She may be schizophrenic, enduring frightful agony day after day for years on end, but I don't see her in her struggle. I see only me. She's disrupting my sleep that is so critical for my world-shaking, history-altering job. In this heroic state of mind, we view the world through our own irrepressible ego. It's what Shakespeare meant when he wrote, a wretched soul bruised with adversity. We bid be quiet when we hear it cry. But were we burdened with like weight of pain, as much or more we should ourselves complain. It dawned on me through these many months of inflammation how swollen we are with ourselves. My problems are monumental. Your problems are minute. To paraphrase Mel Brooks, who paraphrased Shakespeare, <laughs> tragedy is when I stub my toe. Comedy is when you fall into an open manhole and die. <laughs> what a tragedy. Woe is me. I've been limping around town for months, and it seemed to me that I'm the only one hobbling. I look around, and everyone else, eight million people, are fine. They're in perfect health. They're running past me, jostling me on the sidewalk in that New York kind of way. I'm the only one, the only person in New York with problems. It's absurd. Who even thinks of toes? Have you ever? even giving a, given a passing thought to your fourth toe? The one that is so obscure that it doesn't even really have a name? We simply call it the fourth toe, you know, that toe, the one near the pinky. But at least I saved the damsel in distress. Note the human capacity to veil absurdity 
with poetic ballads of courage. Our pain must mean something. It must serve a higher cause. Undeserved and unexplained suffering is stupid and meaningless. When we are moving so effortlessly through life, we tend to attribute our buoyancy to our own innate excellence. We do not think of fragility when we're conquering. We are on top because we have worked hard and we have terrific qualities. We're smart and disciplined. We stay healthy. We eat right. We exercise. We attribute our vitality to ourselves. My success is the product of my will. How do presidential candidates put it nowadays? I'm a winner. You're a loser. I'm so amazing. I'm so successful. We rarely consider the possibility that fortune has smiled on us or that her wheel will turn. And therefore, precisely at these times, when we are most full of ourselves, Jewish sages remind us that strength is itself a form of spirituality. That we should be spiritually inspired when none of the hundreds of things that could go wrong, in fact, go wrong. The rabbis ordained that every morning, when Jews wake up, we should recite these words of religious amazement and spiritual gratitude. Baruch Adonai asher adam Praised are you, O God, who has formed the human body with wisdom in an intricate network of channels and vessels, and if even one of them shall falter, we would be unable to exist or stand before you. Baruch Adonai hamechin gaver. Praised are you, O God, who gives me the strength to stand up. For if even a tiny bone that no one ever thinks about fractures, I shall be unable to walk. The sages constantly remind us that we stand not only because we exercise. The master has gifted us the strength to stand. The Mishnah instructs, know before whom you stand. It's written above our ark and above the ark of hundreds of congregations. Our sages realized that our problem is not that we have a sense of self. That is a good and necessary thing. But that we have an overestimation of the self. We value ourselves too much and value others not enough. We tend to assign our strength exclusively to the force of our marvelous qualities. It's the reason for the book of Job. We must be stripped of what we have to appreciate our gifts. It is impossible to appreciate the gift of beauty until we have been stripped of radiance, boils coming, covering us from head to toe. It is impossible to appreciate the gift of prosperity until we have been stripped of house and home sitting on the dung heap of town.
And it is impossible to appreciate the gift of family until we have been stripped of their loving presence. It is impossible to appreciate the ethereal splendor of life until we have endured emotional anguish. It is impossible to appreciate the gift of mobility until mobility becomes the painful focus of our every step rather than its effortless byproduct. And so Judaism urges us to step out of ourselves even when we are at full strength. How difficult this is, we are not designed to empathize with others. To paraphrase David Foster Wallace, it takes effort to envision that this annoying guy who whizzed by me on the sidewalk might be rushing to his 50th job interview. Or that woman who was too absorbed in her phone call to move aside as I hobbled by might be speaking with her doctor, receiving a difficult diagnosis. Or the parents who coo over their baby, disrupting the natural flow of pedestrian traffic, might have been trying to conceive for 10 years. It takes effort to see that actually, there are many physically disabled and emotionally challenged people on the street, and many more who are not on the street. I'm not the only one limping. In fact, if I'm honest with myself, I have it better than many. If we really look, we discover that everything is broken. We are all infirm. We might look whole from the outside, but we are a collection of broken pieces coarsely glued together. God alone is perfect. The Bible describes how Moses carried the two tablets of stone down the mountain. They were whole and complete, inscribed by the finger of God. As Moses observed the people dancing around the golden calf, he flung the tablets, shattering them into many pieces. Moses then ascended Mount Sinai a second time and returned 40 days later with a second set of tablets that he placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets of the Covenant eventually found their home in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem, the most sacred spot on earth in the temple. But some sages ask, what ever happened to those original tablets? The pieces that Moses shattered, where did they go? There's a fascinating passage in the Talmud that asserts that the shards of the broken tablets were also placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Rabbi Joseph taught that both sets of tablets were there, the perfect second set as well as the shattered first set. The sages felt that the shattered tablets also contained holiness. They too bore the imprint of the divine word. They did not lose their sanctity simply because they were broken. For this reason, he argued, Moses placed the pieces of the broken tablets alongside the unbroken tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. And from this, Rabbi Joseph teaches a profound lesson. 
From Moses, he writes, we learn that we are forbidden to be disrespectful to those who have been broken in life. The Talmud states that a person who does not have suffering in his family for even 40 days should consider himself blessed. Gradually, we learn that we are most happy in the most unexceptional moments of no real drama, the 40 days between crises, moments of ordinariness, embracing our partner, a family gathering, an evening with a friend who alone really understands us, or casually walking our children to school. Even for the most fortunate, our strength will diminish and our power will fade. If we are blessed with fullness of years, we will become frail. The challenge then is to learn how to live when we are empowered, conquerors and dragon slayers, and to learn how to live when we are disempowered. As Shakespeare writes in King Lear, a man who experienced both domination and dependency, men must endure their going hence even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all. Everything is incomplete. We never see the world whole. And therefore, all of us are religious. Everyone believes. Sometimes I think that unbelievers are the most religious of all. Science tells us that we are nothing. Yet even the one who professes no sense of transcendence soldiers on purposefully, hopefully, and courageously. Look at all the people who are in wheelchairs and have nurses and aides with them, men and women bent over by infirmity. Look at all those who endure emotional pain. Look at the dispossessed, the struggling, the chronically ill, and still they push on. This is humanity at its best. What is more human? than to see a person struggling to take the next step, grappling with infirmity of mind or body, mourning loss and brokenness, knowing that there will be no complete reconciliation, but pushing on. She continues to plan for the future. He continues to love, knowing that his love will be broken one day. This is the epitome of faith. To know that the struggle will eventually be lost and yet to persist is the essence of human courage. It is nobility. It is spirituality. What is more spiritual than the human struggle to reconcile with loss, loss of loved ones, loss of physical 
and emotional capacities. Reconciliation is not resignation. Limping through life, wrestling with our angels, retaining our passions and convictions, even during the dark hours of the night, confident that the sun will rise, is victory, not defeat. It is meaningful, not meaningless, purposeful, not purposeless. It is spiritual, not spiritless. Ezehu Gibor, who is a hero? Rabbi Benzoma answers, Hakovesh, the one who conquers. A hero is a conqueror. But what exactly does he conquer? Yitzro, the sage responds. He conquers himself. His urges, his negative impulses, his propensity for despair. There are plenty of reasons for a person to despair. A hero is the one who is not broken by brokenness. A hero is the one who soldiers on heroically, even when not cured. A hero is the one who lives purposefully with incompleteness. A hero is the one who knows that the trumpet of life always wavers, that the tekiah, the unbroken blast, is always followed by shvarim, broken sounds. A hero is the one who, in the face of all of the senseless absurdities of life and the sufferings we endure keeps on keeping on, not giving in to disillusion and despair. Just to have lived, leaving no mark on the world, no sign that we were here, no reason to have paid attention seems to us a squandered life. To see ourselves simply as highly evolved animals, perpetually hunted by tigers, ever on guard as we tensely lap the shrinking waterhole of life, is to succumb to existential despair. Why do I live? If you have sought an answer to this question, you have found the wellspring of spirituality the pure, life-giving waters of meaning that inspired the poets, humanists, religionists, mystics, philosophers, musicians, artists, and even many of the great scientists of the human species. Why do I live? What is my purpose? Let life be for a heroic cause. This is why we are here today, to render our lives more meaningful, to gain perspective, a sense of what could be. We do not expect radical change. It's not the way of the world. Tomorrow, we will be as full of ourselves as today. 
The High Holy Days liturgy understands our predicament. The Kol Nidre prayer asks for forgiveness for future transgressions, the ones we haven't even committed yet. The rabbis simply assume that we will go on being who we are, consumed and driven by the predisposition hardwired into our very being that I am the center of the universe. And thus, what we seek in repentance is not to become a new person, the one we always dreamed we could be. People do not change that much. Rather, we seek a sense of change, some reverberation that suggests the possibility of change. When the prince slays the dragon and save, saves the damsel, we ourselves do not become heroic, but we acquire a sense of the heroic. The courage of another does not cure us of cowardice. Her decency does not expel our indecency. Her generosity does not remove our stinginess. But we are inspired nonetheless because these acts suggest to us the possibility of change. A fracture that is healed does not cure us of brokenness, but gives us a sense that we can be cured, that in some distant land or undiscovered country, human redemption is possible. This is what religion means when we speak of redemptive suffering. We would rather not suffer. But when suffering inevitably comes, it gives us a sense of redemption. That faint glimmer of the fundamental oneness of all creation that suggests the possibility that in the distant horizons of time and space, we shall finally understand why we live.